today's a, a very powerful one. I I usually um, don't record an intro, but I just felt like there, this episode was so powerful, so impactful. There were so many nuggets throughout that um, from beginning to end, you'll want to listen to this. You'll want to re-listen to it. It's a Basically, she, uh, Lori Taylor writes a book about her mom, um, about her mom's murder, and as she's investigating the murder, discovers some things that I don't want to reveal to you, uh, but there's some plot twists to what she thought happened, and um, it's just a, a reminder to us all to uh, seek the truth, be persistent, there's just so many lessons in here that uh, Lori shares with us. Um, I definitely walked away a different person. Uh, with that, um, I want to thank everyone who came out to the Brea Improv this past weekend. Uh, me, myself, Michael Yo, four amazing shows. They were fantastic. Um, my next stop will be the, uh, oh, where am I at? Rio Comedy Cellar in Vegas, uh, October 30th through November 6th. So I'll be there for Halloween. So if you're in Vegas, uh, come to the the Comedy Cellar in the Rio. Come check me out. I'll be there with uh, three other amazing comics. Uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, last time I was there, uh, a young lady came to three shows in a row. So, uh, we're, we're obviously doing something right up there on stage. Um, and <clears throat> I also want to share with you, uh, you know, I witnessed sometimes, you know, we, we get so caught up in what the news is showing us and the negativity today as I was driving, um, I went to the Comic-Con event this weekend, uh, and I've never been. And that's why I went, I went just out of pure curiosity. I want to see what this thing is that thousands uh, of people show up to uh, every year. Uh, I'm a huge Batman fan, but uh, but not to the point where I, I could tell you details about his backstory and uh, or get upset when you know the the movies the, the movie studios don't get it right. Um, I just I just think it's cool that he lives in a cave and uh, has a dope car and travels the world and uh, very philosophical and can fight and you know uh, has a strong mission um, and that's all I need to, I don't need to know all the extraneous but driving home from that uh, I saw a guy get out his car at a stoplight and I was like man why is this guy getting out his car and he walked around to the other side uh, to the to the sidewalk, and he was helping this guy in a wheelchair get up onto the sidewalk. And I encourage you when you see acts of you know I was able to to record it because I, I was stopped at the light, and I posted it. When we see acts of kindness, to record those moments, right? To and to share those so that we are all reminded that. Um, people out there, do, good people out there do exist. Um, and it's not that he's a good person. He just had a great moment that we, that even with all our struggles and our challenges and the moments where we do 
maybe we're not our best selves, there are parts of us that are that still show up and uh, and help our fellow man. So that was just a beautiful thing that I witnessed, and it's just a reminder that it, you know uh, we're not strangers; we're connected, and there's there's someone out there who uh, is who wants to help and also is willing to help and will help, just like that that gentleman did today. So shout outs, shout, shout outs. Is that what we're saying? Shout outs, shout out to him. And, uh, I hope you have an incredible week. Uh, from now on, I'll be, uh, at least for the time being, I'll be posting just one episode a week because I want to focus more on improving the production of the episodes. Uh, as you know, if you've listened to previous episodes, there's been no music, no intro, no no anything, because uh, I just wanted to get episodes up. I just I just wanted to deliver you the content, and I knew if I was trying to put episodes up and produce, I I, I wouldn't have followed through. It, it's that book, uh, the one thing, focus on one thing at a time. So now that I'm confident in getting up the episodes, I also want to become confident and consistent in producing the episodes in a way uh, that, uh, you know, give it uh, a higher quality. So I'll be working on that, and there'll be some tweaks along the way, but uh, give me a feedback. Thank you all for the five stars. We have all five-star reviews on iTunes. It's beautiful. Leave a comment. The biggest thanks you can give is sharing the show. And with that said, let's get in to the episode welcome to another episode of before you kill yourself um, i'm here today with Lori taylor who i'm super excited about did i say your first name correctly you did okay. thank you um i'm excited because you wrote this book and the title is so i'm like what now i haven't read the book okay no worries I wanna, I wanna, I wanna hear the story as you, the listeners, are hearing the story, and I wanna have the same oohs and ahs at the same time. Uh, can you tell us the name of your book, Lori? You bet. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. For my being book there. is called "The Accidental Truth: uh -huh. What My Mother's Murder Investigation Taught Me About Life." So I'm in. I'm already in. This was a, is a this was a lifetime movie, docu series, whatever. I want to know the life lessons because the beautiful thing is, no matter what happens to us, there are lessons. Absolutely in that, right. Um, so can you can you tell us about the book and, and you bet. the story? I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my mother went missing from her home in San Diego County in 2006. And her body was found 10 days later in a remote stretch of beach along the coastline in Baja. And investigators told us after six months of investigating that the case was unsolvable. The two countries, two language, four law enforcement bodies. And I refused to accept that as an answer. And I started to lead the investigation for my family. And after two years, I convinced a former FBI profiler named Candace DeLong. Um, she has a show on investigation discovery uh, called uh, 
facing evil and deadly women, two shows. And I reached out to her through her literary agent and I said, I'm not in law enforcement, but I refuse to accept, we'll never have an answer for your family. And she said, well, you sound kind of reasonable. Well, thank you, <laughs> all things considered. Um, yeah, I'll agree to work with you. And she said, I don't do any of the investigating. You have all the relationships. You speak Spanish. You already have the bridges built in Mexico. You have these connections. Uh, but I'll tell you what to do. And I said, whatever you tell me, I'll accept as the truth. Because I know that this isn't my business. I've pushed this as far as I can. Called everyone, written letters. We worked together, and I came across a piece of evidence. She said, you know, if we can find evidence that compels the authorities in San Diego to reopen the case, then we'll have all of that, invest the investigative resources. You and I don't have much, and, and because of Homeland Security, Mexico, there's limited resources there. So I started going back through the evidence that we had, and when my mom passed away, there was a woman in Mexico that took 13 photos of her at her death and sold them to a San Diego news station. And I was phoned when I was in Mexico to identify my mom's body by a reporter who had helped us when my mom was missing. And he said, Lori, we have these photos and we're gonna put them on the air tonight. And I said, well, what possible reason could you have that, could that help the case? You know my mom is gone. How could that help the case? It's just, and sorry, that's what we have to do. Well, those 13 photos, I ended up um, guilting the president of the television station into releasing them to my family. That became part of our evidence that we had. And, um, my kids were away at an Angels baseball game with their dad, and I pulled them up on my computer and started Photoshopping. It's zeroing in, what can I see, what can I find? And Candace said, perhaps you'll find, it's awful, ligature marks or something that shows that your mom was taken against her will. And that's really what I was searching for. And I found some odd markings on her arms, scrapes, scratches, and, and a wound immediately sent him up to her and she said, you know, Lori, this is really unusual. Um, the quality's not great. Let me share them with a friend of mine. Well, she's a former FBI agent and her friend was Dr. Michael Bodden. He's one of the world, most world famous forensic pathologists. Um, he's commented on every case from OJ Simpson to, uh, you know, uh, Scott Peterson to Lacey Peterson to all the ones you know. And I said, well, that would be amazing. People pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to have him consult on cases. I'm really appreciative. Um, she took it to Dr. Bodden, and uh, he came back, and he said, this doesn't look like a crime scene to me. And she said, what, what are you talking about? And, and there were some things. Um, my mom was half clothed. My mom had money in her socks. She was in Baja. If she had been robbed, if she had been, you know, beaten for for money, the money would have would have been gone. So robbery wasn't a motive. She was in this very remote place. Said, so, you know, go and keep digging. And what we didn't have, what Candace said we really needed, was supportive evidence. I ended up working with the. Uh, they were amazing. Uh, Department of Justice special agent who was on my team. I called him every week, like clockwork. And there was also an investigator in Mexico who was very dedicated to my mom's case. Um, I think it's the one of the surprising things people always say, well, 
you know, what was it like dealing with, you know, authorities in Mexico? I said, you know what? They're unbelievably kind and respectful. They wanted to solve my mom's case. I knew it. And they stayed in touch with me. In fact, they handed me directly evidence in the case when they felt they were blocked by bureaucracy with authorities in San Diego. They were fantastic. In the end of the day, um, one of these special agents went to Mexico, talked with the investigators. Um, all the evidence had been lost in my mom's case because they moved buildings in Ensenada, found the evidence, and they had found 57 photos that had never been seen by investigators um, at the time of my mom's autopsy. I had been asking every several months, were there photos taken during my mom's autopsy? No, 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 no. And I realized in Spanish, I was asking, I was asking the wrong question. I was asking antes de, were there photos taken before my mom's, uh, or during my mom's uh, autopsy. And then I realized the correct verbiage, and I asked it, we used to speak in this mix of Spanish and English, I asked, asked it the proper way. And he said, oh yeah, there are photos for sure. Now I don't know where they are, and that agent ended up going down, searching all of their, through their evidence lockers and finding these photos, bringing them back to the US. Uh, Candace and I looked over them together, and we sent them back to Dr. Bodden. And I got a call, it was after four, after four years of searching, and Dr. Bodden said, um, what mental illness did her mother have? Candace said, excuse me? And he said, um, she died by suicide. This isn't a murder. Um, that she had died a hypothermic death, so my mom had, um, had cut her own wrist. And um, all of the evidence that we had seen to date, there was no blood evidence. There was nothing no, anywhere. It didn't make any sense. And these photo, 57 photos that came back, there were two photos from the inside of my mother's van that she had driven to Mexico, and there was blood in the van. And when we looked at it, um, we thought she had been beaten or she, you know, someone was trying to rob her. And Dr. Bodden said, no, she's uh, to clear inside left wrist injury. She's a right-handed woman. And then we said, well, how do you explain the scene? She looked like it was perhaps a sexual assault. And the stages of hypothermia are very interesting. First, you shake and shiver, and it's your body's attempt to keep your, your organs warm. And then as your body tires, um, you go through a phase they call the stumbles, the mumbles, and the grumbles. Uh, because all of the blood has been drained from your extremities, it's been drained from your brain as well, and you have limited function. It's almost like you are drunk, so people stand and fall. Hence the bruising that looked like my mom had been beaten. She looked like she had been cold cocked. She had a you know, bruise on her eye, she had bruising on her neck, bruising on her arms. And um, the next phase, um, the body tires and people lay down. But um, in the last body's last attempt, um, in the, the tires of holding on to all the blood around your organs, the blood rushes back to your extremities. And it's explained as a hot flash, the hottest hot flash you could ever feel in your life. So you're freezing to death, 
but you feel like you're burning to death. And it's called paradoxical undressing. And people take off their own clothing. And it happens a lot to hikers in the, uh, you know, in the Himalayas. They find them half clothed. And people are like, why would they take off their clothing? Um, it happens in urban areas a lot. Uh, people, you know, uh, assaults are mistaken. Uh, you know, um, hypothermic deaths are, deaths are mistaken as assaults. You know, homeless people that are out and they're freezing to death. And they're, oh, they were beaten to death. Um, and then the coroner goes in. They're like, no, they, they died of hypothermia. And that's what happened to my mom. Um, she didn't bleed out like someone would who would hit an artery and would bleed out in, th in 30 minutes. The slow bleed out caused what they call hypovolemic shock. You lose the volume of loss that you lose in your blood over time. She probably lost a fourth of her blood over, over time. Causes your body to go in in shock. When you're in shock, if you get hit by a car, someone says, put a blanket over you, that's because of hypothermia. You're, protect you're guarding the body against hypothermia. And that was my mom, which he actually died of. Wow, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. Um, the one thing that stands out to me is the persistence on your part. Thank you. And because you could have very easily have accepted what you were told, the information given. I mean, because you, the information you were given was by all these different experts and people yes. in, uh, who are respected in their fields. And... In your heart, you just, you're like, I... I'm a Scorpio, Leo. Oh. <laughs> it's in my nature. Uh, my we're natural detectives. Yes. We're, we're, yes. We have to get to the truth. The truth is a very central yes. theme in my life, and, yes. and that is one of the things that this investigation pointed out. I appreciate your compliment. Um, I couldn't have done it any other way. It is actually my nature. Right. It's true to my nature. Yeah. And... Um, uh, people are often surprised by it. I'm the youngest of five kids, and you know you get sort of drowned out in the pool of, of five kids. And it was a very interesting turnaround and dynamic in our family um, to have this responsibility, to have the respect of my siblings, to have them. Lori's in charge. It was a, a very empowering experience um, in, in in that regard, and very connecting. Um, for me and my family, uh, they trusted me in the investigation. They they let me go, and um, I'm forever grateful for that. Did your was your mom diagnosed with anything? Was there a history of uh, any type of mental struggle? She was never diagnosed. She was always a searcher, Leo. She she was the, the type of mother that, um, well, we called her quirky. She was quirky. And she could go from zero to 100 in terms of anger. So she had that emotional dysregulation always. Um, that was what we called her personality or her or her quirkiness. So we walked on eggshells as kids. What are you, are you getting happy mom today? Or are you getting mom that's going to lose it, on, you know, because there's a crumb on the floor? It was really like that. She, I tell people, I always knew in, in her soul that my mom wanted the absolute best for me. She was the type of mom that she would sit me down. She was super well-read, armchair psychologist, latest reading, um, she wrote to, um, uh, she read quantum physics, um, she wrote to people, she, she was a learner. And I think she was on unconscious, an unconscious search to fix herself. And she passed that along to her children. One of my favorite stories is 
you know, there were lots of stories. Well, I knew she wanted what was best for us, but she sat us down uh, at the dinner table and she put out all the silverware and put everything. She said, I don't know if you'll ever be invited to a state dinner at the White House, but if you are, I want you to know which fork to use. Wow. She was a magical thinker, a dreamer, a, you know, her, where she came from was a super, super poor area of, of Pennsylvania. She grew up on a chicken farm and she's so far, she was so far ahead of her time in the things that she was looking into, the things she explored. And um, so to answer your question, we did not, we weren't aware of an illness. We really, that was who our mom, it was our normal. Right. It wasn't therapeutically normal, is what, you know. So when all of my sisters went to grief therapy, we went to the same therapist. The therapist said, your mom had borderline personality disorder. I'm sure of it based on these stories. Um, Dr. Bodden concluded, um, Candace DeLong, the FBI profiler, was a, the head psych nurse at Northwestern Memorial for 20 years before she was an FBI agent. So her input there, your hometown, uh, and where my son was born. Um, her input and her sensitivity about my mom's mental health has, has been huge. Um, in accepting that as an answer, um, I had, you know, I went to tell my sisters, um, I presented I, a notebook to each of them because I knew this would be very difficult to accept because for four years, the FBI, the Department of Justice, San Diego Sheriff's Office, investigators in Mexico, your mother was murdered and this was how. And then to turn around and say this, um, there's another thing about it. There's a different um, victimhood. So immediately when you're the victim of murder, people, to reach out, you're, this terrible thing happened, this un remarkable thing. And when you say mental health and you say suicide, people run for the hills. It's scary. It's people, there's so much stigma. There's, and there was stigma and shame on my sisters and I. How did we not know? We didn't recognize the signs. Why didn't we get our mom, you know, care? And that acceptance of that is a death came in different stages for each of my sisters. I was privy to all of the physical evidence, to all of the toxic conversations with the investigators, so I accepted it right away. It took a bit of time for my three other sisters to accept that as the truth. What would, how did uh, the grief therapy and counseling that you went through, how long was that? It was immediate. Um, I, I started going, and I say this, I, um, about three months in, I was walking through the fog of my mother's been murdered, there's an investigation starting, and then I say that fog, I, I didn't see what was coming and I fell off a cliff. And one day I woke up and I said, I need a pill or I need a, something or I need somebody to put me to sleep or I, I, I can't, my anxiety was so... Uh, another world, otherworldly. And I had shame. I had never been to therapy. But what I wrote in my book and what I felt at the time was, or re on reflection, I probably should have been in therapy my whole life, you know? So my first visit and um, start talking, start talking to my sisters about it. And you go through your history. You go through what was your childhood like? What do you remember? What do you, you know, and part of what we know about telling your story in therapy is if you can tell a, uh, you know, a cohesive childhood story, that's a good indication that you had a fairly secure upbringing. When we have lost memories, when we have um, idealized situations that might, that 
aren't ideal, um, we, we know that that indicates trauma. And, and this storytelling thing is really, really important. For me, the storytelling, going and insisting on writing the book, um, feelings that I never thought I could express, things that I would have repressed because that's we, what we were trained. Uh, when you grow up with someone with a mental health issue, unconsciously everything is about them. And, and, um, and they speak the language of invalidation because that's what they know. And that's what my mother grew up with. Uh, language of invalidation, uh, can you speak more about that? Sure. So um, one of the things, the reason I said I learned something from my mom's book was I, after learning what her, her, the true cause of death and her diagnosis was, I had to understand what that meant everything about it. And borderline personality disorder um, and many personality disorders nowadays, um, they believe, researchers believe, may be caused by chronic invalidation. The other thing about borderline personality disorder is that the the therapy for borderline personality disorder, if I could have gotten my mom therapy, would have been dialectical behavior therapy which uh, was invented by Marsha Lenahan at the University of Washington. She's a borderline herself, interestingly enough. And um, it's based in the language and skills of validation and in mindfulness techniques, this combination of these two. The reason that validation is important is that someone who is living in this state in borderline personality disorder, they are generally it's part of the diagnosis, a hallmark for it is black and white thinking. So th there isn't gray. It's all or nothing. All or nothing. There's no nuance. No, and the reason for that is because they have no clearly defined sense of self. And, and so they must, they must put up people, relationships out in front of them that represent what they wish to be, right? So they wish to be. So if someone says the sky is blue and they say, no, I see this, this, the sky is gray. In, you're in or you're out. So they're great charmers in bringing people in and then you're demonized if you don't agree with them. The way to relate to and the way to connect with anyone, but to connect with somebody with borderline personality disorder, a narcissist who has black and white thinking issues as well, is to validate their experience, to validate their emotions. So not to be confused with um, agreeing with their point of view, agreeing with bad behavior, agreeing with uh, the way that they show up. We must always have our boundaries and, 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 and they must, you know, and they must be clear. So validating someone's experience would be, wow, I, I see you're in pain. Um, I, I see you're struggling. I'm really sorry you're feeling so sad. I, I don't really understand what you're going through because I've not gone through something like you've gone through, but you know, can I help in some way or would you like to talk about it or can we just sit? Um, that makes a person feel seen and heard. Borderlines, border all they desire is to be seen and heard in, you know, in their lifetime. Um, consequently, people who have been invalidated learn that language and pass that language along. And it's, um, to me, I don't think it's, I haven't seen anywhere where it's been called chronic generational trauma, but I believe that's what it is. It's, um, borderlines are very much about what it looks like, not what it is. 
So um, we were trained to go out and, you know, we had, you know, things flying out windows at night and the police coming to our house and violence and language and whatever. And it was like, oh, now march out and make honor roll and the drill team and, yeah, and, and make it look good. And, and we learned that pattern, my sisters and I, of expressing ourselves. It's all fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm good. And the tears are you know, streaming down. Oh, no, no. It's all good. I got this. I mean, it's, it's all good. So, you know, unlearning these patterns has been very, very um, important and very important about what I teach my children because I brought, everyone does, we're all pain balls. We're all wounded in some way. Um, and when we have awareness of that, we can change it and, uh, and address it. Um, if we live unconsciously, we will act unconsciously. And um, so, telling my own kids these truths, writing the book, sharing about mental illness and not having shame. There's no shame. My mom didn't ask to be ill. My mom didn't ask to be invalidated in, you know, in her lifetime. And um, that to me has been my finding mission, purpose, meaning in such a big, grave loss and uh, showing my children that life is full of these things and it's our response our thoughtful response to them, being responsive, not reactive. We are all going to be reactive at, at points in our life, but if we know the difference in the two, um, then we'll lead a much, uh, there'll be a lot less mo emotional dysregulation. It's, it's so true. Uh, you know, I, I forget who said, but they were like, we all have that need to be seen, heard, and validated. And, uh, and but you like, I love what, how you pointed out like you're validating the emotion, not the behavior. Those are two separate things, right? It's like if somebody punches a hole in a wall, like I understand that you're angry. I'm not accepting you putting a hole in a wall, but yes. I'm going to validate the fact that you are upset and, and that's okay. And, and I think that like when you look at social media, so many people are addressing people's behavior and we're not talking to people's emotions and then starting from there and building up. It becomes a compassionless. It becomes, you know, invalidation. I say it's the building block of connection. Validation um, is how, how we connect in, in our being. Invalidation is how we disconnect. Um, it, it, I, you can look at every example. You can look at race, for instance, and I look at, you know, when someone looks at, at someone of a different race and they say, well, systemic racism doesn't exist. Well, it doesn't exist for you. We're, we're separate individuals. This is my life. This is what I've lived, experienced, felt, um, you know, emoted. Uh, you know, this is, how can you say that's not, it's not, it is, a, it's, a hundred percent real in my real. You may not see it because you have this perspective that doesn't allow you to see it, or an awareness that doesn't allow you to see it. And that's where, to me, frustration and anger and and generational to be told for hundreds of years that your experience, that your your pain didn't doesn't exist because you can't see it. I tell you, we're not designed to be robots. We have different DNA, different life experiences, different relationships, and honoring that to me is where we build connection. We don't have to be the same to do it. Absolutely, I mean, that's it, it's what makes um, uh, our, you know, that's why the human species has been able to go on and survive for so long, because we all are all different, so then when we come together, 
we can we we're finding answers and different answers and, and we're able to innovate and change and move forward. That's why we're able to work with different species. Uh, Yuval Harari, who wrote um, Homo's, uh, who wrote Sapiens and, and Homo Deus, he said one of the reasons the human species has been able to survive for so long is that we can work and communicate inner with different species. Like we we work with yes. dogs, we work with horses, we work with uh, cows and wolves and and but you know gorillas aren't working with lions. <laughs> you know, and, and lions aren't working with bir- like so. We're the only ones that are like, hey, we we've, we've diversified. We we're not like, oh, that's scary. We're bringing in these different species, and and we're sharing our story. You know, that was the other thing he pointed out is that what connects people is our story. So, you know, if you're Catholic and I'm Catholic, even if you're from Budapest and I'm from uh, India, the fact that we're both Catholic. We, we agree to that same story of what Absolutely. Catholicism is. Absolutely. And that that is what makes us um, feel alive and human is commonness. Yes. We, we, we can, you can find with any person on earth, so, I have three sisters, I'm from Chicago, I'm from, and, and having those conversations and sharing those stories, it's been the most healing part of writing a book. Mm. Um, when you are vulnerable and, and authentic and tell your story and lay, fillet yourself, as I say, out there to the world, um, it hands people a permission ship to permission slip to share in return. And that's the greatest gift that I can have as someone to share their vulnerability, their truths, their story um, with me. Um, the most interesting part about telling an investigative story that ends in this way with mental health and all is uh, people that wouldn't normally pick up a book about mental health or suicide pick up the book and they say, you know, Lori, I became invested in your family and I came invested in your story and I could relate to your sorrow or your desire for the truth or whatever it was. And then I was open to this message about mental health because I felt a connection with you and and I look at it differently. And when people say that, it's my greatest blessing for telling my mom's story is I look at mental health and stigma differently now. And what's beautiful about what you said is, uh, you know, so many people are afraid to get help because then they're afraid to be diagnosed. And but with the diagnosis, right, what that diagnosis allows us to do is to be able to better communicate with people so that we can then um, ask for what we need. Like if your yes. mom had been di- if she knew her diagnosis was borderline personality disorder, and this is what it looks like, and this is what you require, this is what you need to thrive, this is what, I, this is what you need to navigate the world in a healthy yes. way, then she would have been able to say, hey, at this moment, what I need you to say to me is ABC. So, so then what you're doing is you're able to then teach people how to communicate with you in a way so that you you don't you know it, your your bad day doesn't become a horrible day and then becomes a horrible year and you know and then you're at, you know it leads to dire consequences. It's it, so it true. It allows for better conversation. It is. It's 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 
it's how they say in a relationship, right? You, you bring your true self, you bring your authentic self, or there's no genuine connection. And then there's all of this, you know, dancing around me, and, and then resentment happens because your need isn't being fulfilled. Well, it's not being fulfilled because you haven't been able to say what you need. You've right. said what you thought you should say Absolutely. in relationship. And, and the same thing happens in mental health. People are, stigma makes people ashamed to, to say out loud, I, I, don't, I don't feel well. I don't, my, I'm sure there were times my mom, in, you know, isolated, she did, isolated herself. She ran off at times in, our chi in her childhood. And I think because she was overwhelmed by her own emotionality that she didn't understand. And we would have had compassion for that. Oh my gosh, mom, how can we help you? How can we... And um, the fact that shame is associated with an illness is so foreign to me. We would, we would never shame someone who has cancer. Try harder. P pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. Uh, someone who broke, in, broke their leg, you know, uh, <laughs> work harder. Wait, well, no, I can't. Actually, I'm waiting for that bone to heal. <laughs> like, there's nothing, you know, nothing I can do. And um, one of the most interesting things that happened to me, Leo, when I was interviewed after my book released was... Uh, an anchor for a top station in LA, came to my home, super kind, wanted to do an interview about my mom's death. And we were going through the story and she said, oh, so she concluded, so you found the murderer, you actually found the criminal. And I was like, excuse me? And she said, well, yeah, your mom, your mom was responsible for the death. And I was like, yeah, you'll never get me to say that. So if you, that's what this is about, you'll never get me to say that. How unbelievably cruel to say that my mom, this happened to my mother. My mother didn't choose to have her illness. My mother didn't choose to be in pain. And when people say someone chose to take their life or they chose to attempt, what I would tell them is, it's an interesting thing about the brain. When the brain is, is in pain, fear, shame, guilt, we, it automatically, we're in that fight, flight, or freeze brain activity of rumination. So studying rumination has been something for me, cyclical, negative thought patterns. Everything's about our, our patterns in life and thought patterns are, are one of them. And when people ruminate, people who are having ideation, when they are ruminating, it's at a response to shame, guilt, pain, but all of those, those things automatically. And what we know about when people are ruminating, they don't have access to their cognitive brain, right? So they, so they become reactive. That's why there's emotional dysregulation. That's why there is, in the two minutes where they're ruminating, they think, they believe that brain that's telling them the world's going to be better without me. Uh, you know, they, my kids won't miss me. I'll be less of a burden. All, all of those lies they believe because they don't have access to their cognitive reasoning brain. And how I explain it to people in a very simple way is I said, do you know why people, why first responders are called first responders? First responders are first responders because they aren't first reactors. So they, uh, so policemen and firemen go out in these terribly emotional and dangerous, and so they would automatically be, you know, vulnerable to be in fear, flight, or flight thinking mode. What they do is they're highly trained to focus their trained to focus on their training step by step. If X happens, do this. If B happens, do this. C down the line. We know that focus, focusing on something, that's why 
meditation works. Focus on breath. Focus on learning. Focus on training switches that neural pathway to your responsive cognitive brain for reasoning and thinking. What I tell people is my mom didn't have the option to make a choice, right? She didn't have access to her cognitive reasoning. We go in and out of that state, so it may appear to people someone made a clear choice. Well, it's not like they went and chose chocolate ice cream. They went, I'll have the chocolate, I'll have the, ch I'll have the, the chocolate mint, I'll have the whatever. They, they didn't choose in the way that we go and we make a choice to brush our teeth in the morning. It's different thinking. And I think that um, the, the reason it's important to give the distinction is for compassion. Um, I, I think anyone who is living in, in, in trauma, in, in pain, in emotional pain, deserves compassion the end of the day absolutely absolutely i mean it, it's it's you know the fact that how many siblings do you have well i have three i had a brother that passed away okay so um and so the fact that you you have siblings and you you had a home and and she was teaching you how to eat at the white house like she she was clearly fighting for life she was you know she could have easily had, had withered early on and not had kids and but she was she was growing and, and doing those things that as humans we should be doing and try to expand and 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 teach and pass on and um, and so she she clearly was a fighter and and you clearly got that from her thank you right thank you and what so you talked about meditation do you meditate well it's inter um so another story um, I meditate I use insight um, oh, insight timer. I love it. And, oh, yeah. um, so it's, um, it saved me in some, I have to be honest, it saved me in, in many, many ways. I didn't practice or know about meditation after my mom died. It's something that's come recently. So, um, I lost my best friend a year ago last week to suicide, um, in an, uh, an uh, a, the fact that it could happen more, more than once in a, in a lifetime to lose someone, um, is sort of overwhelming to, to, to me. I've actually lost a, uh, two very dear friends um, to suicide. And my dear friend Sue um, was there for me the whole throughout the investigation of my mom's death. Um, she happened to have a triggering event um, a, a number of years ago, af uh, two years after my mom died, and she attempted. Um, and together, we built this promised to each other that we were going to, there we, was going to be no stigma. We were going to talk openly. We ended up being dual keynote speakers together, building this no shame, shame zone. Um, some people do have, there are biological factors in, you know, people who are more inclined to suicidal ideation. It's a very small, it's not a big percentage, but, they, but there is a, a factor there. And she had a predisposition. Um, when Sue died, um, I... I didn't have the same response as my mom um, because I I didn't have the guilt that I have my mom of not knowing. I, w I knew in my whole heart I was there for my friend in every way I could be as she was there for me. There was reciprocity in our friendship. It wasn't, it wasn't one way. Um, and this terrible thing happened to her, this illness that she, um, she didn't have, she, she, she had a support system, but she didn't have an awareness of um, how her thought patterns, her rumination, 
was her, it was vicious. It was the most vicious I've ever seen for a woman who was five nine, blue eyed, red haired, gorgeous, smart, as funny as hell, dancer, all these things that you could tell someone on the outside. Um, on the inside, her brain was telling her lies and telling her this, you know, this different thing. So when Sue died, um, I had to search again. We, we can make it, we have a choice. We're going to learn something from a terrible thing that happens. Um, there's the choice for me, I know from grieving before, is looking back, questioning. It's a process that you go through. But anything past an initial part of doing that is is you're perpetuating your own suffering. So I can't answer any of the questions. I can't. There are questions that will never be answered. What I can do in my mom's honor and Sue's honor is learn something and share it with the world. Learning about rumination and learning about Sue's propensity for rumination was one of my things. So you asked about meditation. I found myself because I'm a writer. I'm uh, I, I work for myself. I don't have to go to a job every day, ruminating myself for hours on end. And I thought, okay, um, you know how this goes. Um, you're going to go to the basement <laughs> if you allow yourself to, to continue ruminating like this. Um, and that's when I came upon this information about the brain and about fight, fight, or freeze and being in pain. And so I thought I need to focus. So I started on Insight Timer and um, it was immediately helpful to me. I found a voice that, that spoke to me. I found a message that spoke to me in my grief. Um, and then somewhere in my intuition, I, um, I thought I need to learn something simply for distraction. But what it was, was if I focused on something else for that time, I wasn't ruminating during that time and I was burning a different neural pathway and I was in my reasoning brain. I wasn't stuck helpless in my emotional ruminating brain. That's so why I took an astrology course <laughs> and I took a psychology course. And uh, I thought learning something to honor them, to honor myself, to keep myself from this space. Um, when I need to lay in the bed and sob and honor them and my feelings, I will. Um, but then there's a time to pick myself up and get out in nature and breathe and ruminate and not ruminate. And um, so meditation, refocus, being conscious of my own thought patterns and, and how they work. Um, trauma, and I've been through a bit of trauma in the last 13 years, um, keeps us activated, keeps our nervous system activated, keeps us in that emotional state. PTSD is a classic you know, example of that. So um, for me, I'm going to live what I speak, and I'm going to be conscious of my own thought patterns and changing them and... Um, and uh, but allowing myself to have and validate my own feelings and have compassion for myself when I just can't get up out of the bed and I'm too sad to, you know, to, to get out and pretend. I'm not about pretending anymore. It's about what it really, what it really is these days rather than what it, what it looks like. That's why uh, to be in the truth as much as I can. <laughs> I, lo I love so many things that you said. One is, uh, you know, that whole idea of refocus because I too uh, uh, subscribe or ascribe to astrology. Ascribe, yeah. And what I love about astrology is that it's not so much that I believe in astrology, it's that it, it does help me refocus because I go, all right, I was born March 18th, 1976. 
I'm a Pisces. Pisces. Right. Yeah, you're a deep feeler. Well, my sister is a Scorpio, <laughs> so I understand the she's definitely as feisty as you are. Um, and I go, all right, if I'm a Pisces and I accept that, right, and I just go in with an open mind and open heart, what is it? A, what are the characteristics of a Pisces and where do I thrive? And what do I need as a Pisces? And then I'll, I'll look through that and then I'll go, oh, I've been doing two, three, and six, but I probably I haven't done one. For, so then I go, let me just try those and see if I feel better. And nine times out of 10, I feel better, right? It's about self-awareness, right? It's just right? about self-awareness. It's, it's about looking, what's yeah. my story? What's, what's my, my story? pattern? Yeah. What's my, because you know, who, yeah. Because who we are as a person is 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 not just our, our story didn't start when we were born. Our, start, our story started before. It started with the star because we're all connected. Yes. So it's like, what's the story of not just me, Leo Flowers, but uh, of people born on my birthday? Yes. Right? And so then I looked into my Chinese astrology, and I'm like, all right, what's the dragon? And how do dragons act? And where do dragons thrive? And what I'm do they tiger. need? You're a tiger? <laughs> and then, you know, when you combine the your eastern and western, that gives you your spirit animal. Yes. Uh, and so I'm a firefly. So what does a firefly need? And so as you start to click through these, it, it that, re, you know, I remember, because uh, what I'll do is I'll do, sometimes I look at my daily, I have a daily podcast I, I tap into, and then I look at the monthly. Like, what do I need to focus on this month as a Pisces? And I only use that information when I feel like I've lost focus. I go, I feel a little off. I feel out of control, mm -hmm. so let me just surrender control to the stars. What do the stars say? You know, and the stars say this. All right, let me try that. And even though it's not scientific, I feel better. I it, refocus. Anything that you where anything. you're learning about yourself anything. is is a is a benefit. It yes. really is. Now, as a water sign, look <laughs> at me. I'm switching this around. Yeah. Are you sensitive to full moons? Do you have? Do you feel any of that energy? You know, I I, I can't always tell because you know there's so many factors like how I've been sleeping, what my schedule is like. Uh, am I track? You know, it's, 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 it becomes hard to separate what's causing what sure. thing. I feel a sensitivity myself. That's why okay. I asked. Okay. And water signs are, we're deep feelers. So I tell people, you know, you get what you get because I'm super fun and happy and joyous as you are, as I can tell by your energy. And um, and I said, but I feel that when things are sad or things are off, I feel that very deeply. Very empathic. As well. Yes. How uh, <laughs> empathy is an uh, it's an interesting thing. So I that language of validation and empathy. Um, just thinking about validating and, and empathy. It's something that can be taught. So they they train you know hotline workers uh, on the suicide prevention hotline. That's how you build quick authentic connection with someone. I think that should be a lesson on every dating site. <laughs> Let's teach people the language of validation and empathy. If you true if your desire is to truly connect someone, then you validate them in their experience. Meet them where they are. Hundred percent seen and heard, and and that is about building connection. It's not about building. Um, you know, we look like X couple Insta celebrity on, you know, on Instagram. I, I think social media, and here's where I sound old, um, you know, social media, unfortunately, is all about what it looks like and not what it is. And we're, we're building this acceptance 
of that. And um, as an investigator, I'm working on a, my next thing I'm, I'm working on is um, I've found really interesting information about false persona building. It's incredibly common. Flat out people that have built entire careers on a foundation of lies, not 50% lies, 97% lies. And I think that not having an awareness of, you know, stop, question, research, is that the truth? We're sort of complacent about the truth right now. And um, I think that has to do with our political climate and the lack of truth in, um, well, uh, without being political, uh, the, <laughs> the, all of the, the false things that we, that we hear every day, the content that we're getting that we're, um, people are become, becoming complacent about the truth. And as a Scorpio, I have a terrible time with that. Like, wait, no, we have to stop and, and question. And, and that same keyboard that you type all of that, mis, you know, people type that misinformation in and put their filtered pictures on, you can get the truth. Just type it in, search it. Oh, were they born there? Do they work there? Did they do? Um, people are getting taken advantage of. Catfishing is one of the largest growing crimes in our country. They just made an arrest in LA a month ago. $45 million in a bank account. Uh, 80 catfishers in this catfishing ring. Um, target vulnerable people. They target people, they, they, they groom them or, or, you know, or harvest them through social media. People who have experienced tragedy in the past year slip into their you know, DM and snag them for money. So I just want, I, I think it's super important that people are aware of what's not true <laughs> in question. And, and, and not just about what's going on in the news and politics in the world, but also what's true about how you feel in yes. the moment. Yes. Because like it, it goes back to your story of like so many of us are running in this pattern of thinking that what we feel is is true and that if we dig a little deeper we go, "Oh, I'm just really scared." Yes. Or, I'm just really I'm just really tired or overwhelmed or sleepy or <laughs> You know right? what's interesting? <laughs> People have one of the most difficulties, difficult things for people is to identify How the emotion. Yeah. And I've been reading recently, um, one of the things I would love to do, uh, because therapy and resources aren't available to everyone, is um, have you heard of expressive writing? So, um, so we get back to storytelling. Expressive writing um, has been researched extensively since the 80s. And there was a professor, is a professor at the University of Texas. He was formerly at SMU, my alma mater, um, named Jamie Pennebaker. And he, he wanted to find a way for people to be able to identify and, and express trauma, pain, th their story, because we back to we know if they can't tell a cohesive narrative, if they don't have a cohesive narrative about their childhood, they probably experienced trauma that most people did in some form or fashion, even if we don't nowadays call invalidation trauma. And he has these, these writing prompts that you take, they're 20-minute prompts, and you are encouraged to write your story, not in a I was born in 1944 in you know Iowa, this and that. It's 
I felt this happened. This was the biggest, the most impactful trauma or tragedy or pain I felt in my life. And they encourage you to write about it. And uh, no one reads it, so it's it's your personal information. They want you to be as truthful as possible with yourself and identify as much emotion in your story as you can. And they administered it to college students around the country. And in study after study, what they found was people who wouldn't normally go to therapy because of culture, because of cost, because of being a man, because of whatever it was, um, found great relief and performed better over time. College freshmen, it's a huge transition time in their life. Hey, go have fun, parents say. Kids are like, wait, this is stressful. I'm taking how many hours and I'm trying to live and I'm trying to, you know, figure out who I am. And so um, what I have proposing to do, what I would love to do is this share your story tour on college campuses. And I would go and share a bit of my own story and tell them how it, tell, you know, really speaking my truth and telling my story, which I wasn't trained to do as a kid, freed me. And, and, and how this would could free them as well and then give them these journals that have the writing prompts so we can do it in high schools, in the inner city, we can do it. It's, it's a low cost, instant, instant uh, bit of therapy for, for people. And it also gives them power over their own story. Every story is important. Your individual story is important. And um, I think that if if we could if we can do that, nobody not everybody has the resources to walk into into therapy. Um, uh, it would be that's my it's my next project. It's my um, I've been working on uh, getting a corporate sponsor so that um, I could go to I'd love to go to um, Common in Chicago. He has a Common Ground Foundation and he works uh, with high school students transition transitioning to college. I think it'd be a wonderful place to start. Wow, that is so powerful because you know I I, I, I journal every day, but I don't cons I don't think of it so much in, as journaling. Uh, I my thinking on it is that I take notes every day, mm -hmm. and I just sit down with mine and I write one through ten, and I just I just write down ten things that I noted from the day, and it could be an emotion, it could be. Oh, I ate such and such, and then now I feel bloated. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, that workout felt really good today. Or my legs haven't, re you know, it's just random stuff. Oh, I need to send this email out. It could be whatever it is uh, because uh, sometimes too much emotion becomes too overwhelming for me. So to have the mix of emotion and objectivity, that works for me. But I also love the idea that you're, t you're speaking of in terms of writing prompts. Because th I think that's what is so hard for most people. They go, where do I begin? Yes. Where do I start? How do I start this? And, and, and but it also is a reminder of helping people tap in. How do you feel right now? And it's a, yesterday I was, um, I was, I was I thought I was hungry. Because my whole thing is food. Like, that's my drug. And <laughs> we I, have that uh, in common as well. <laughs> and, and then I, but then I read this thing. That here's where, you know, knowledge serves you. Uh, and, and sometimes, like, but then habits sometimes override what you know. Sure. But, um, but if you, when you're really hungry, you can wait to eat. 
if you're not really hungry and you feel like I have to eat right now, right now, then you know it's an emotional hunger and you, you really are needing something else that would be more fulfilling instead of something that's filling. Yes. Yeah, you're trying to fill a right. hole <laughs> right. with the right. uh, I boy, can I relate uh, to that? And giving empowering people would with two sentence that two sentences of, of knowledge, oh wait. I do have control over this, just like I have control over my I have control over my eating patterns. I have control over my thought patterns. It's not the other way around. We don't have to believe that voice. We can stop if we're aware and challenge that voice. Oh, am I really hungry? Or ah, uh, am I just really sad? And chocolate sounds great, you know. Um, I and I love those empowering messages. Um, sometimes uh, I believe that. Uh, we want to paint people into just categories or good or bad that we're, we're, you know, perpetuating this black and white thinking. It's, you know, it's one or the other and we're just all wounded <laughs> and, and we're, and having an awareness of those wounds and those patterns, whether it be eating patterns, whether it be thinking patterns, whether relational patterns, um, then we can change them. Then, then we can address them. And uh, that's, I think, where real fulfillment, real happiness, real um, understanding of yourself first. Now I under, Now I get, you know, people always said that all the time. Oh, you have to love yourself first. Okay, well, the, great. That's nice to say. What does that actually mean? And, and loving yourself means honoring it all and having compassion for yourself and, and, um, and awareness. I think that I always say, I'll say uh, when someone is not capable of do, doing something, I'll, I'll say, instead of saying they're a bad person, they won't do, I'll say, no, they're just not capable because they're not at that level of awareness. Absolutely. And, and I can let go of that. I don't, you know, um, I can't do anything about someone else's level of awareness unless they ask. So. I, one of my good friends, you know, uh, him and his girlfriend uh, had a, a, a dispute. Argument seems like it's too much, but um, where they, they, just, uh, they just didn't connect on, you know, he said we're going to leave for a certain event at 8, and then they didn't end up leaving until 8.30, and she became anxious. She was like, why aren't you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. You said 8, and it's 8, and... And he's like, you know, why are you upset? He's like, it's it's my event. You don't even know where we're going. I haven't even told you where we're going. I told you eight, but you don't know that we're, you only know that we're late because I, whatever. And he was like, I don't understand. And so I told him my story of, he, he didn't understand anxiety because mm -hmm. he, he himself and his family, they're not an anxious, they, it's just not in their DNA. And I told him the story about my childhood and waiting for my father to show up. And oh. sometimes he would, sometimes he wouldn't, but I'd be on that stoop waiting for him, looking at the w clock and, and, you know, he drove a, a, a black Cadillac and, you know, I lived in Chicago. There are a lot of black Cadillacs. <laughs> so my, huh, huh, and, you know, and then, huh, huh, no. And, and then he, he, he goes, Oh, I understand anxiety now. Aww. And it was it was one of those things where it's you realize the power of storytelling, and that, and that's why we have to tell our story instead of just saying you should understand me or you don't care about me. It's I you it's that I just haven't found a way to communicate 
the 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 message in a way that that resonates with you. Yes. And, and we haven't, and that's all it is. Yes. Because it's it exists on some level, right? And there are some stories that, and some experiences that people could never um, truly understand. But we can always empathize. Absolutely. I, I've not been through that. I don't know what it's like to feel anxious. It's just being cognizant and aware of how we see people. People aren't generally trying to do something about to <laughs> us, right? They're not trying to frustrate us. Or sometimes they are, right? But in that case, you know, she her frustration was was internal. Mm. Her frustration was was really about her. And and when you can see, oh, that's about you. What's what's really going on? What's what? Why? What are you upset about? What? What are you? You know, what's going on with you? All right, you might notice a little edit there. We the, the dog just came back. Um, that's that's what happens when you have a live show, ladies and gentlemen. Um, is there are there any other lessons from your book that uh, that you you taken away from the? Yeah, uh, one of the greatest lessons for me is um, sometimes we don't find what we're looking for. So I spent four years searching for a criminal, searching for you know in living you know in in fear, and um, but I found um, sometimes we find the lesson that we need, and it's precisely precisely what I found in. Um, there was a reason I needed to dig and find this for my family. We needed to know this truth as a family so we could heal, so we could live more transparently and honestly, so that we could understand that each of our stories is important, not just my version of the story, but each of my sisters lived through this as well. My my kids lived through this trauma as well. And um, now I'm realizing how much trauma they actually really lived through. I tried to have their world be very normal for those four years. So four years of my son's high school years were, were consumed by this investigation. Um, I'm really super proud and I don't have anything to do with it. They are both compassionate, lovely souls and super open to this message and sharing the message and, and proud that our story is out there. And um, if I can say that about two kids in the next generation who are willing to talk about mental health, I've had my kids come to me and, and they've had friends struggling. Uh, they, they talk openly. They know how to speak to someone. Are you going to harm yourself? Do, are you feeling this way? Do you need help? Do we need to speak to someone for you? Um, and that is probably one of the greatest lessons in um, what I thought would be, naturally would have thought and was trained to do would be to protect them and not talk about all of this pain and what this means and we're ashamed, we have mental illness in our family. Uh, it's something totally different because of this story. They also saw um, that this is a part of life things happen um, and we only control that that response or that reaction and um, seeing their mom at my age go back to school learn to write uh, have a book published uh, learn about a whole new my background's in sports marketing I worked with NBA player I worked with professional athletes I marketing and branding this was not any of my uh, history. And I tell people, particularly women my age, you know, your kids are off. Your life's not over. Your life is 
you just opened a whole new gate and, and we're always open to learn. We're always open to explore and learn something new and create a new version of ourselves and, and transform ourselves. Um, the other choice is to stay in our victimhood. I call it the cement boots of, of victimhood and, um, and live in denial and not acceptance of what is. Uh, that acceptance of what is has, has been a a big thing in my life, particularly with losing my friend last year. And um, not that I didn't grieve and honor and her and, and my pain and all of that, but um, I know that the sooner that I accept what I cannot change and make something good of it, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel comes. And we, and, we, and we step out into our transformed self again, our higher self. That's, that is, I believe, the definition of higher self, is taking these learning opportunities and learning from them. Absolutely. It's like when you, uh, I was reading this book, Unbroken, yes. about the, uh, the, 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 the Olympic runner who was taken prisoner of war, and, uh, and they were at sea for 47 days. Oh. And they had a, you know, they're, they're on this raft, and there's a kit. And, you know, the first thing they did, it was, you know, being on this raft in the middle of the ocean, was they took stock, meaning... What's in the kit? What do we have? Where are we? Is everybody okay? What do we need? How much, you know? And so I always think about that in terms of when I feel myself in a distressed situation, just top, stop and take stock. You know, who, who are my friends? Who can I reach out to? How much money do I have? What books have I read? What, what needs to be done? Do I need to do laundry? Just, you know, it's just kind yes. of like there's a reason why a store closes for a few hours. So, you know, if you get to a store too early, you're going to find you're going to see boxes all over the place because they they're trying to count how many cereals they. And, and if you don't every now and again, take stock of your emotions, then how do you know what you need? How do you know? What do you know? How do you know what to order? Yes. How do you know what to ask for? Yes. Right. And so. It's, it's that part of awareness, of being aware of where are you right now? Yesterday you were great, right? But today, not so great. You, a, couple, somebody, a couple people bought some cereals. So you, you have to show up on your, on your gratitude or your empathy or your energy. Or maybe and remember that not every day, you know, we, it, have yeah. this, we have this false belief, I think, that we have, we're developing uh, that it's all, we're always ascending. Oh, you're, uh, and you know it, it, that we should always That's be so moving up. And just the acceptance that that life is not that way, that clear picture that life is up and down, and we're dancing the dance, j just trying to keep our feet on that, you know, on that that up and down line is. Um, it's very freeing. You know, when we let go of expectations that don't serve us, um, it's one of the things when I start to ruminate, when I have a negative thought pattern coming, um, I stop myself and I say, is this thought serving me? Nope. Don't have to believe it. Don't have to go. Move on. You know, go breathe. Let the, you know, breathe in some fresh air. Go watch the birds. Go see the ocean. Um, get out of this pattern because that is not serving me. So is this food that I'm putting in my mouth serving me? Well, no, but I really want the <laughs> chocolate anyway. <laughs> but it's helpful in that, you know, that, that negative cyclical thinking. And, you know, the, the beauty of journaling is um, w when I have the thoughts that aren't serving me, 
I write it down, and then I go, I'm, I'll come back to that later. Oh, that's wonderful. Because when you are, what I've realized in just conversation and communicating with people, when you're talking to someone who's emotional, you can't tap into their rational brain. It becomes, it's challenging. Yes. Maybe you can, maybe you can't, but sometimes you can't. You can't get them in. They're in their amygdala. It's 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 it's, it's firing. 100. So to get them in their frontal cortex is going to be a little challenging. Same thing with yourself, right? So when I when I find myself in that fight, flight, or freeze, or my my cortisol levels are quite high, and I start having the thoughts, I write those thoughts down. And then when I come back to to earth and I come back to center, um, I will go back and look at those thoughts and say. Um, all right, what part of this is true? Because the, the thoughts didn't come out of nowhere, and it's not completely untrue. It, it may just be an exaggerated truth, you know? Absolutely. And, and that terms of, like, if you're like, oh, I'm so fat, I feel fat, or I'm so uh, uh, lonely or bored. It's like, uh, all right, it, it, part of that's probably true, but probably not to the extent, it's not as bad as you think it is but because your emotions are high you think it's at a 10 when really it's at a three or four or five and then you could come back later and say all right what's what's something I can do to move that in the other direction just writing it down writing honors it, down. it. Absolutely. You know, it's that they they say that you know the way to learn something is to write it, speak it, all mm -hmm. of those different things. And I think the same is true for you know what you're doing there as an example of that. You're learning from your own experience, and um, you know the hallmark of my mom's disorder uh, is emotional dysregulation. And it's interesting that in a society where everybody now has a platform, everybody has, you know, has a say, I feel in some ways we're promoting reactive thinking, reactivity, and emotional dysregulation when actually our, our ideal state is calm. That's when we have access to, to reasoning. That's when we have, you know, we can respond in a, in a thoughtful way. When we realize that our thoughts, our emotions and feelings aren't going to last forever, right? Th this is going to pass, just like something else if I allow it to. So I'll write it down. I'll honor it. I, I can examine it later because I'm not in a state I know myself well enough to know I'm not in a state to really know if this is really truth or if this is if this is just I'm having a really hard day and this has been expanded by other things or or um, you know our default thinking is right to our wound so when we are in a vulnerable state that neural pathway that's burned like a super highway goes to our wound and so you know when things are bigger than they could be it's probably because we're bringing our history to it, right? We're just bringing all of our all of our wounds, all of our fear of abandonment, fear of failure, fear of not being good enough. Oh, wait, that this problem is, you know, the size of a, you know, a coin, but I brought this whole world of my wound to it, and that's why the emotion's so big. You know, and uh, being able to know that and know there's not there's not something wrong with that. That's that's the default mechanism of our body. And simply having awareness of it, we can breathe 
and stop. And, um, and that's, I, you know, uh, I love everybody having a voice and I love people speaking their truth. And I, I think a pendulum has swung in a, another direction where rancor and, you know, really emotional reactive thinking, um, we're seeing a lot of it and I'd love to see it swing back to some more thoughtful, <laughs> responsive, Absolutely. you know, uh, thinking. Um, is there is there anything else that you we any other lesson from the book that we haven't covered? Um, I would say that you can always advocate for yourself. People don't know that they could call, for instance, in my mom's case, the sheriff's station. They can call the media. They can call the Department of Justice. They can call. We always have the ability to use our own voice and. One of the things for me growing up as a kid um, in an invalidating environment with a mother who spoke the language of invalidation, dry it up. Uh, you know, I, I'm the best crier in the world. You don't, you know, you don't have anything on me or, you know, or, uh, you know, nobody wants to hear your troubles or, you know, uh, march out there and make us look good. All of those invalidating statements and all. Um, what I would say is that we forget that we have a voice and I didn't know I had a voice and writing uh, living this experience, speaking for my mother, asking questions that needed to be asked that wouldn't have been asked otherwise, um, and then using my voice in a book, uh, really speaking our family's experience, I, I found my voice. And I would remind everyone they have a voice for themselves to always advocate for themselves, their family, their children, um, and to, to remember that and, and know their rights in that regard. Um, I was fortunate that... Um, Law enforcement agreed to work with me because they found me, um, I honored that they knew more than I knew and that the case was going to be solved through someone in law enforcement, not through my own efforts and validating who they were and how they were helped to build a bridge there and a relationship there. So I would say always use your voice to advocate for yourself in these, in these situations. Uh, Lori Taylor, thank you so much. I ask this of all my guests. And we understand that you're not a psychologist, uh, but I always feel like there's someone listening who's on a precipice of taking their life, completing suicide. Yes. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? I always say, and I'm not a comedian, I'm not a doctor, and I don't play one on TV. However, <laughs> my life experience has taught me in this regard, before you kill yourself, what I would say to anyone struggling is, this language of validation and empathy starts with you in, in the language that you speak to yourself and, and self-compassion. And self-compassion, self-advocating, use your voice to ask for help. Um, you, you, you deserve the help. You deserve the compassion. Um, your brain, your emotional brain is telling you a lie. You are always worthy of life, of love, of compassion, um, and please don't don't forget that there is a, a place for you to to find that. And um, and what might in two three minutes be a moment of absolute despair and pain, it will pass. The sun always rises. The storm doesn't last forever, and neither will these deeply painful real feelings of yours they will pass as well. So give yourself the time to allow them to pass and the compassion. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? 
I'm uh, I'm on social media mm-hmm. at Lori A. Taylor on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And I have a website, www.lori-taylor.com. It's L-A-U-R-I-Taylor.com. And my book is The Accidental Truth, What My Mother's Murder Investigation Taught Me About Life. And it's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. Uh, and that'll be linked in the show notes. Did you write another book? Or was that, was that your first I book? haven't. It's my first book. Wow. Uh, but you're working on another book currently. I'm working uh, actually on some journal investigative journals pieces. I, I really want to write. I want to be a journalist. So wow. I'm working on a couple of, of pieces right now. Uh, so what were you doing? Oh, you said you were in branding. You said so I worked... Uh, uh, Right out of college, I worked with NBA players. Carl Malone, Spud Webb, wow. and Joe Dumars were my first three clients. I was their age, I had 85 draft, and uh, then I worked uh, bringing retired professional athletes to corporate events for Samsung for chalk talks and cocktail parties, Super Bowl parties, and um, I, I'm a huge sports lover. Um, you were talking about the differences in people. They're not 12 quarterbacks. We need different players at different positions, and that's why we're we're – we're different. Uh, we honor differences in people. Um, we're not supposed to be robots. There it is. I love <laughs> it. Thank you so much, Lori. And thank you all for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to talk to a therapist, going to group therapy, calling a friend, call an enemy, call a stranger, yell out your window, get a bullhorn, talk to somebody. Your voice, your story needs to be heard. People want to hear it. Um, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.